Lisa, can you believe that it's been a year already? It's been 52 episodes of Unfazed. I I cannot believe it. Time Uh -uh. flies. I don't know if this is like dog years because of COVID or what, but it's, it's, it's been a year. It has been a year. And I, you kept saying to me, the one year anniversary is coming up. The one year anniversary is coming up. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be weeks away. And it wasn't. And here we are, number 52. So, you know, I think we should do something fun for this episode. We have accumulated listeners along the way. um, And not Mm -hmm. everyone has heard some of the earlier episodes. So I think it might be neat if you and I share some clips from our favorite episodes. What do you think about that? I mean, shouldn't all of them be our favorite? Well, right? yeah, we, yeah. yeah, yeah, but let, let's pick a few for people to listen to. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, first of all, let me just say that we do not shy away from a challenge, clearly, because what possessed us to start a podcast in COVID? I know. That, I mean, were we just sitting around bored and didn't have anything else to do? I mean, Apparently. I wasn't bored. <laughs> well, you know, most folks in the DEI world certainly were not bored in 2020, you know, in addition to COVID, of course, then, you know, we also had other issues that were going on in the world. Uh, the George Floyd murder, the Breonna Taylor murder. We could go on and on. The um, Our Asian siblings in the Georgia community. Mm-hmm, there, there were just mm-hmm. so many things that were going on last year. So if uh, anybody was bored, that definitely wasn't us when it comes to DEI people. We were busy, busy and in, in pretty high demand. Um, but we managed to carve out a few moments every week to record a podcast. Um, so it's incredible we've made it a full year. Yes, we have come a long way, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, you know, I think what's what's cool about this particular podcast and how we kind of launch things, um, let's, you know, pull the veil back so people can see how things actually work. But, you know, when I looked it up, I said, let me just be nosy and, and do a little bit of research to see who else was crazy enough to start a podcast like we were in the middle of a pandemic. And apparently it was about 808. 85,000, so 885,000 podcasts were launched worldwide in 2020. So we were in good company. Let me just say that. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so, you know, and from what I've read, that's almost triple the number of podcasts that were offered in 2019 and the year before. So, you know, yeah, yeah. It just completely, you know, ballooned out, which is incredible. Now, here's the thing, though. A lot of people only did a few episodes here and there, maybe 10 or less. Um, Most of the podcasts, so about 30% of new podcasts only had one or two episodes. We, on the other hand, have now 52. Yes, we have stay in power. (laughs) Stay in power. Look, as long as the people want us, we must give the people what they want, right? We got to keep coming back. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's important for us to kind of think through, you know, which podcast really stood out to you and I, it's, it's almost like choosing your favorite child here. It's probably pretty hard to do, but, you know, we've tried to pick out a few that were our favorites. Um, and so anytime someone asks me about the podcast, because people are still learning about us, right, Lisa? 
Um, I always tell them my favorite episode is chess. So why don't we let people take a listen? When it comes to, you know, being the clarion voice and, you know, strategically putting people together, because, you know, one of the things I thought about, especially at the new year, so um, a lot of people know, I I would not ever profess to be like a deep scholar on Dr. King, but um, I have read every single sermon that he wrote and, you know, lots of other letters that he wrote while he was in jail and so forth. And the first thing I thought of, you know, especially in the new year, um, even with this work around chess and strategy of DEI work is that, you know, Dr. King wrote The Drum Major Instinct, and he wrote it um, specifically talking about how the drum major instinct can be used, you know, for good or for folly, if you will. And so, you know, he gave primary examplers, examples of folks like Hitler and, you know, others who were damn good drum majors just in the wrong direction. And so, you know, for me, I, I think it's interesting how he, he even talks about in uh, the drum major instinct, how he always tries to kind of, quote unquote, convert people when he goes to jail and not necessarily convert them religiously, but convert them from a social justice perspective to think about race and even talking to wardens when he's in jail about this, quote unquote, race problem that they were experiencing at that time. And, you know, that to me really does make me think about, you know, obviously I, I don't uh, <laughs> I don't delude myself into thinking that I would ever get to that point. Um, but what are some takeaways from that when it comes to the character of both being a clarion voice leader that's trying to build champions, but also mm-hmm. being strategic in an environment that you know that has n- not been built for this type of work? So I'm, I'm like in my brain, I'm thinking about, and I'm not, <laughs> we, we need like a, a, a graphic designer that could do this complex stuff that you and I think up, Lisa. I'm thinking about like a chessboard that's not mm-hmm. horizontal. It's mm-hmm. like kind of, you know, tilted. And we're still trying to play this game with strategy and thinking two or three steps ahead, but knowing one false move and all the pieces slide off or, or they move in a place where you didn't intend or something changes or adjusts in ways that you thought you anticipated, but you didn't, you know, of course, we, Dr. King even talked about part of his strategy. He knew that he might not make it, you know, to the mountaintop with us. He talked about not even living to see you know, the ultimate dream that he had. And so, you know, I'm just thinking through what it means to be the first, play the game, play the game in a system that is not built for the system to be played in and still level the -hmm. playing field to actually still help everyone to win or at least move forward or take another step forward. It's, it's complicated. And um, I like the duality of the complication, but you know, we're trying to help leaders here in the mm-hmm. new year take steps forward, um, given the complexity without uh, deterring them from doing so. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I hope that this isn't a deterrent because it does sound hard as you're talking. I'm like, whew, that's a lot of work, right? But I think when we're trying to essentially move the Titanic um, and, you know, the steering is busted on the Titanic and we're trying to shift <laughs> right, that right, boat, right, right, right. This it's, it takes a lot of effort and mm-hmm. there, there is a, there is a first, there is someone that needs to be the first. And it actually makes me think of this um, video that I saw years ago with it within our context of leadership training and teamwork is this um, festival, this music festival, Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And there's, yeah, there's yeah, like yeah. A, there's like a person dancing, and 
he's dancing completely alone, right? And there's a narration over the top. And then like a second person starts dancing with him. And, you know, and there's just these two people dancing, right? And so that's the buddy. That's <laughs> yep, the buddy. That's your buddy. Yep, and then, yep. and then um, it reaches a tipping point where a third person comes. And when that third person comes and starts dancing, then everyone, and then it suddenly becomes a hundred people. Like it's really quick. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about there's a necessity in being the first, but you don't want to be hanging out there alone for too long. Um, because that's a lot of stress and a lot of responsibility. Um, you really want to share that load and that's what you're looking for, right? That you're looking for your number two, your buddy and, um, thinking strategically about who that number two could be. And Mm -hmm. then that number two might bring number three. And then once you have three, it topples, right? You get, Mm -hmm. you are more Mm -hmm. likely to bring a lot more people along. Um, so that those first few chess moves that you take can define the whole game. So Lisa, when you mentioned that story about the one dancer getting an entire movement started, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly what it's all about. Like, I'm really hoping that our listeners are those folks, you know, they're the ones that get things started wherever they find themselves in whatever Mm -hmm. context and their work environment, what have you. Um, I think they have to be that one dancer that gets things moving. I do. I think it's still so true, right? That you need that tipping point, the one person that's out there and then the second and then the third, and then you get a crowd. Um, And that is, there's perseverance in that, um, putting yourself out there, standing in what feels like an alone space sometimes, which can be very intimidating, particularly with diversity, equity, and inclusion, but Mm -hmm. it's really planting your feet to the ground or, you know, dancing to the music, um, and knowing that people will join you, um, right, right, you know, finding those allies, finding those champions. Absolutely, absolutely, so true. Well, now another one of my favorite episodes, um, like I shared before, um, it's an acronym that we use in the Black community quite a bit. <laughs> now you and I, we we let it fly. I mean, you know, we don't filter ourselves on this <laughs> podcast, right? I mean, you know, if it, it's a word that um, you wouldn't want your children to hear, you may just want to. What, what should we, we should basically categorize ourselves as PG-13, I guess we should say. I but, suppose. <laughs> right. Um, but instead of saying a four-letter word, we use the acronym Sugar Honey Iced Tea. Sugar Honey Iced Tea. So take a listen to this one. Refusing. Yeah. And so being resistant um, and and being, this kind of goes back to Kendi's concept of being anti-racist as a active choice to be against the current of. And that's exactly what we will have to do moving forward. Anyone that wants to be a champion of this work, we will literally have to swim against the current of language, code words, behavior that tries to paint these topics as divisive. Um, and, And I think the divisiveness, so for example, if Lisa, if you say, you know, the color of your shirt sucks, well, I'm feeding into divisiveness if I say, well, I like black shirts. If you like blue shirts, then we're just going to have to be on different teams versus responding to say, does it really matter what color shirts we have on? That's a diversion. We all have shirts. We're grateful to have the shirts. Let's move forward. Like it's it's so important to name things, but also diffuse things that are not relevant to the conversation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a good friend of mine I used to work with at College Park, 
who went up to into upstate New York and did very similar work to what we do in a K through 12 setting. And there was a outpouring of disdain and disgust with this person serving as a, a chief diversity officer role because of this very topic. Uh, the parents, the family members, et cetera, thought that these topics, just even bringing them up in the history of U.S. history, world history, uh, even topics about sociology, biology, science, they felt it wasn't appropriate because it was divisive. And I you know, kind of dug into it a little bit further and so forth. And they were talking about, well, I want to have control over what's appropriate and what's not. And as I'm reading this article, um, now, this person has long gone, left the position willingly, said, I'm not exactly what we said. I'm not having this coded divisiveness conversation with an entire you know, city school system. Um, and what I thought was profound was that the history piece, it's okay to tell the part of the history and the content of K through 12 that we are comfortable with as nice white parents, family members, loved ones, but the part that we're uncomfortable with, that's divisive. And so I'm like, wait a minute. So we can talk yeah. about every single American president in the history of this country who were slave owners, who were rapists, who were sexist, who were all the ist, et cetera. But we're not going to talk about the Trail of Tears and we're not going to talk about Emmett Till and we're not going to talk about XYZ. So it's almost like... <laughs> They bring up certain heroes and then they don't talk about the battle that they faced at that time. So how can you talk about Martin Luther King if you're not talking about the full story of civil rights? Or how can you talk about Thurgood Marshall if you're not talking about the whole movement of civil rights, especially in law in this country? Like you can't talk about the sexy commercialized hero that you like to quote without talking about the battle that they were in. So you'll talk about war heroes in this country, but you won't talk about the actual battle they were in and what they were fighting for. Straight up bullshit, flat out, all of it is. That that to me is, what did we say before? Um, cherry picking things? Like you're taking mm -hmm. out what's commercially sexy without talking about the context. Right. And that's irresponsible, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I think it's completely irresponsible. So, you know, how do we get to a place where we're not cherry picking what we are most comfortable with? Mm. you talk about the Sika Henry's of the world, but you don't talk about why it's so difficult for her to get her pro card in the sport of triathlon. Right. I love you, girl. I, yeah. This is not about you. It's about the system, you know, or, you know, we talk about uh, women who have been repeat world champions, but we don't talk about how difficult it was for them to get a slot to begin with. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about any of that. Or, you know, we talk about that one, uh, blind triathlete uh, that finished their first full Ironman, but we didn't talk about how difficult we made it for people to become guides for those folks so that they could have someone along, um, alongside them as they accomplished this goal. We don't want to talk about that part. We just want to talk about, oh my God, they did it. Against what? Exactly. Against what? Let's talk about everything they were against to still be in the sport. That We don't want to talk about that whole system at all. None of it. Right. Right. Or if Parents. we do talk about it, yeah, it's it's brushed over a little bit, right? Like ad quote unquote adversity, right? Quote unquote <laughs> struggles. Right. right. It's never really named explicitly. And then if it is in the rare instances, some of that is named, nothing is then done about it. There right? you go. 
Well, uh, if we don't name it, we don't have to do anything about it, Lisa. Right. You know, if we don't name it, then we can keep saying, oh, this person is a stellar human being, which they are, without saying they're stellar with this backdrop of ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, it's the both and, you know, I can say that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my list of friends now who are African-American, some of the few that are now getting to go to Kona this year, for example, they did it, but against what, you know, let's go down the laundry list of things they had to work against to get, to get there. You know, I have a friend that's going to Kona this year and, you know, had to get over major anxiety of, you know, going through, riding through a park in the deep South and having cans thrown at her while she was riding her bike. She went to Kona or is going to Kona in spite of that bullshit. So let's talk about the whole story of how she's going to Kona. And you know, those little porn stories that they show when they do the telecast and everything where yeah. you know, this veteran did this, and which I, I love those. I'm the one that's like boohoo and listening to these stories. So please don't stop the stories. But what I am saying is tell the fuller story. I want to cry that my black friend is going to Kona, but I also want to cry in the context of knowing that this person is saying F you to every racist that didn't want her to ride her bike through that park at the same time. I want to do it all at the same time. Well, and implicate, like when we're telling those stories, white people in particular, when it comes to race, like implicate ourselves in those stories, right? That our inaction and kind of glossing over of some of these um, systemic problems has created this kind of euphemism um, of adversity, right? Um, Without uh, any accountability, right? Like no athlete should have to quote unquote overcome adversity to have a place in a championship or even just in a local race, right? Like Mm -hmm. we shouldn't even be at a point where we are celebrating individuals for what they have done, again, quote unquote, in spite of, right? All of this shit, like the shit shouldn't be there. And so Mm -hmm. that's part of our responsibility, white people, men, able-bodied people is to clear away the shit. But if we don't talk about the shit and we just say it's divisive to talk about the shit, then the shit is going to continue to stink. It's going to continue to be there. Yes. Yeah. Look, we we might call this the sugar, honey, iced tea episode, the SHIT episode, because we're just letting it fly today. But but you're right. And well, and see, this is where I think the divisiveness and niceness start to bleed together. Because what we're saying is we would rather be nice to each other and avoid calling out what's really happening because it's divisive. So I I think niceness and divisiveness get rolled in all together. And that's what I'm scared. Like, I'm actually scared of niceness. And I'm not saying go out and be rude to people or be unkind to folks. But what I'm saying is that we're prioritizing niceness to the detriment of truth telling. So I loved that we really got into the details of how shitty the DEI world is, frankly. I mean, Sika Henry is one of my really close friends Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I just adore her. And she just is just a wonderful human being that happens to be really fast. Um, And so, you know, for you and I, I think that's where we constantly speak truth to power because we kind of step over the challenging context that people have overcome and just focus on all the good. And I'm like, oh, that's right. right. To me, that's, I don't know if that's revisionist history or not, but it's definitely exclusive of Mm -hmm. the full truth, you know? And so I just really think we have some work to do in that area, but 
Um, I hope you enjoyed that episode too, because I think we let every curse word fly in that one. (laughs) Very possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think that we still are apt to do that. This kind of toxic positivity that you talk about, right? That let's just focus Mm. on the good stuff. Let's not focus on the negative stuff. And I don't feel like um, that's, you know, universally a bad suggestion, but when we are trying to sidestep barriers and challenges that are historically located and have created the discrimination and disparity today, then I think that becomes problematic, particularly when white people are doing it or men are doing it, right? Because it's too mm. uncomfortable to talk about what those barriers are. That's um, right. That's right. You know, and I, I still see that now, particularly with critical race theory in the schools, right? So we're mm-hmm. not going to teach critical race theory. We're not going to teach students how to think about race and to understand um, what the, the importance of 1619 and the first enslaved people arriving from Africa and how that kind of like set the United States on a certain trajectory when it comes to um, chattel slavery. We're not just going to talk mm-hmm. about that because I don't want, we don't want people to feel bad about it when, um, so it's kind of sides, it's not sidestepping. It's like a massive, like long jump over this important part mm. of the United States history to get to a point where, you know, we had our first black president. Yay. We're post-racial, which clearly we're not, but you know, that's sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I think it's just such a, it's such a relevant um, episode to share, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I appreciate how we kind of did our best to call out the deception of only telling part of the truth rather than the whole truth and how, you know, year after year, century after century, there's information that's filtered out. And then the next thing we know, it's like a really bad version of the telephone game. And you get to the end and the original message or the original instance or situation is nowhere close to where, to what actually happened and where we mm-hmm. are at the moment. So mm-hmm. that was one of my favorites. In addition to the the hot-headed cursing that we need to have, because it's just <laughs> somewhat therapeutic for the work that we do. Um, so that one was a fun one as well. Um, I think one of the things that we did that was really daring too was that we actually usually don't have male guests on our podcast, but we broke our little unwritten rule, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, and invited Dr. Sean Mark Anderson, uh, who had recently gained uh, tenure as an associate professor. And he came on to talk to us about athlete activism that wasn't just about uh, the Muhammad Ali's. Um, of sport, but he talked about all of it as a major enterprise. So take a listen to what he had to say. Yeah, no. uh, So to answer that question immediately, yes, there there is change. Uh, But I would fashion to say that, okay, for example, you talk about a diversity and inclusion a lot with with a lot of your work Uh, and, and with organizational communication um, that's one of the areas that I focus on under this whole umbrella of social responsibility, uh, right. specifically with sport organizations. Mm-hmm. I will call out to say that, yes, we are seeing a lot of change. We're seeing organizations say, okay, we want to create a more diverse and inclusive environment. We have beefed up our numbers in this particular area. Mm-hmm. But the problem that we're seeing now is retention. Whereas people Mm -hmm. are, you're getting the numbers, but the assimilation and the socialization processes that we see in organizations don't fashion themselves to keep whoever it is that they've decreased those numbers by, you know, they're not staying because the culture is not changing. Okay. So I'm saying that to say, 
yeah, we're, we're seeing a, a, a lot of changes in the realm of uh, athlete activism and how it's actually kind of pushing these organizations, the, 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 the NBA, mm. the NFL, or NASCAR, any of these sort of organizations yes, to be like, okay, well, we really got to sit down and look at this. I mean, the NFL even admitted that it handled the Kaepernick thing wrong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but but after time, after they went through this whole vilification for not standing up for these issues in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I always question people. I, I teach a sport and public communication class and we talk about all of these issues. And I, and I challenge the students. OK, some of you agree, some of you disagree with Colin Kaepernick. You know, I can't change your mind. You, you're young adults. But have you ever taken a look at his website? Oh, we didn't know he had a website. Oh, okay. Take a look at it. It's called the Know Your Rights Campaign. Right. And on this website, he talks about all of the issues that he was fighting for. And he's give gave a laundry list, right? Those receipts, right? Of all of the organizations that he's made his pledges to over Mm -hmm. that year campaign. Nobody knew a thing about that. Mom's the word, right? Right. And, and, and so I've always said that sport organizations are, are very reactionary versus having sort of a, uh, a a flexible guide in which they can work to handle these issues, you know, mm-hmm. over time. As they, as they, it's always, right. oh, we'll investigate the matter and, and, and we'll see what to do from that point. Yeah. So, yeah. so the change is there. How sustainable that change is. Uh, that's the work that I'm looking into. So what I thought was really important, Lisa, about what he shared with me during that interview was, you know, there's a lot of work that's done to get more diversity into a lot of different sports. He mentioned several popular uh, high profile sports, um, but also the retention piece of not only getting them into the sport, but keeping them there. And what that means as far as an organization's corporate social responsibility, which we have used that word and, and that acronym several times across several different episodes, um, but it bears repeating once again that mm-hmm. um, athletes, especially underrepresented athletes, are looking to see what you stand for as an organization. And if mm-hmm. that doesn't jive with their values, they're not interested. And so I thought that was just a great way to contextualize what we've been talking about, whether it's Muhammad Ali or Naomi Osaka, whoever it may be. I think it was just really great that he kind of gave us his scholarly perception of this work and he's continuing to write his book. So we can't wait until that drops, but it was an incredible episode. So I'm glad we broke our little rule and let Dr. Anderson on to join us. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very bummed. I missed that interview. I was listening to it in the car on the way back from the airport and um, was talking to the radio as I usually do when I'm in agreement or frustrated by something. So um, I definitely had lots of thoughts to share uh, with mm-hmm. you after that. And, it, you know, I'm thinking um, specifically last night, I was reading an article in the New York Times about how Facebook has failed to um, effectively um, stamp out racism um, mm. against uh, British Uh, soccer players, British soccer players of color um, Mm. who have experienced a significant level of um, hate 
um, posting hate Facebooking. I'm not sure what the term is mm. there, but particularly after mm-hmm. the European Cup where um, a couple of um, football players of color missed goals, missed uh, penalty, penalty shots. And so they were then harassed significantly. And, you know, it's been a back and mm. forth between UK soccer and Facebook to try and have them take responsibility for this. And then um, it sounds yeah. like it just hasn't really been very effective. And Granted, I'm talking about professional soccer here. And so these players are paid a significant amount of money and they're not potentially going to leave the sport. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. folks are watching, right? I'm watching and seeing Facebook mishandle this and it's affecting my desire really, among many other things, to continue to engage with Facebook as a platform. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so you've got your three. So now let's move on to mine. Um, So I'm going to start with episode 37. Um, So it's a little bit more recent, but this one was Energy Vampires. And if you recall, um, I um, started out the episode talking about a particular TV show that I had been watching. So let's take a listen. Okay, so... Yeah, there are these vampires that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and they live, you know, they live now in 2021. And so it's kind of covering all of their antics. And um, the one of the vampires, Colin, I think his name is, is this energy vampire. So the way that he draws energy, so which is his feeding, right, is that he will bore people. So, you know, he's in an office environment and he goes cube to cube and starts talking about things that are just very dry and very boring. And that is his <laughs> way of sucking energy from the other person. Um, and so, you know, so then he's, you know, no longer hungry. And I just, I think about that in, in this context, right? In endurance sport, when you're trying to keep the momentum going, and we've talked about momentum um, before, and yet you just get tired because there are these one or two people that you feel like you're banging your head against the wall, but you don't stop banging your head against the wall, right? Like there's Mm. no um, recognition that maybe this is, this person is a lost cause at this moment in time. Right, right, right. Well, you know, exactly. They're a lost cause at this moment you realize that you're expending more energy than you really have to give. And as a result, what ends up happening is it's a diversion really, because the people that are interested in doing the work and they are interested in learning more and they've kind of primed the pump to hear what you have to say, we're completely neglecting those folks to pour energy into a lost cause in many ways. And so, you know, how do we get past that point or, or is there even a point of recognition where we recognize that this person at the moment is a lost cause and therefore it's up to me to figure out what to do with my energy at this moment. Okay. So I love this episode because I was just thinking about this TV (laughs) show the other day and wondering when the next season was going to come back. And then I was recently somewhere and um, got into a conversation with an individual who certainly likes the sound of their own voice. And Mm -hmm. it was just, Mm -hmm. I couldn't like, I couldn't get away you know, those situations yeah. where they're just talking and talking about themselves and about what's wrong. And I didn't really want to be in the conversation, you know, so I'm trying to edge backwards and I could just feel my energy just being like drained from me. And it made mm-hmm. me think of this particular episode um, and how we apportion our time and our energy when addressing diversity, equity and inclusion with friends, family and colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really good one that I enjoyed because I remember those years of doing this work where I wanted everyone to come from a good place and I wanted everyone to be 
altruistic about DEI work. And what I wasn't realizing was that I was spending more time convincing folks of the good work than actually doing the good work, which was exhausting. So no wonder I was tired. Um, and then also, you know, looking at the numbers, you and I know pretty well the numbers of folks and the turnover in DEI work, whether it's the turnover of chief diversity officers that is only like three to five years and we've hung in there for many years. And so, you know, given that this um, topic is one that was really prevalent for me as a younger DEI person. Um, and now I've gotten to a place where I'm, I'm gonna, uh, if you could see me, I'm kind of washing my hands here. Sometimes you have to wash your hands of people or individuals that are really taking you away from the actual work um, and it becomes a diversion. So that was a really good one. And the energy vampires, oh my gosh, that we, we need more garlic. Let's put it that way. We all need more garlic if we're gonna continue to do this work and do it yes, well. Yes, we so, do. Yes, we that do. That's one of my favorite episodes. I love that one. All right, so my next favorite episode was episode 16 and it is uh, called White Hot. And this is where we got into forests and flammable embers and controlling fires. And I think I went down a road of talking about um, controlled burns. So let's let's mm -hmm. listen to that. Did you see that Instagram post uh, related to Black Girls Run and a white woman had emailed them accusing them of reverse racism? Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. I, I saw that one. And um, I, I had time on that day. I, I started scrolling through to see what the perspectives were on that. And, you know, yes, I took it a little personally. Um, that's how I got started in endurance sports with Black Girls Run. So I, I took it a little personally. Definitely. Well, I think seeing as this is our last episode um, before we take a break uh, and wait for 2021 to come around, I figured we should go out with a bang, with some fire. Um, so, Whoa. I mean, here's how I feel about reverse racism. It's not a thing. Uh, it's not a thing. Not even close to a thing. I, I, I concur. I concur. So, Lisa, you know, I saw that post on Instagram and yes, I was very offended, but then I had to kind of revert back out. It's kind of like playing double Dutch. It's like, okay, how am I taking this personally? But how am I also taking this as a professional and a DEI person? And reverse racism just literally is not a thing. And in fact, sometimes I think people use the language not even knowing what the definition is or how mm -hmm. it's been used historically, mm -hmm. et cetera. I'm, I'm not expecting everyone to walk around as a scholar, obviously. But um, the textbook definition of reverse racism is perceived discrimination against a dominant group or a political majority. So given that most people use this language and historically it's been used when people opposed affirmative action. And so dominant groups felt as if they were being discriminated against. And so that's where the language comes from. Some people don't know that, but even for those who do know that, they still take it as a personal affront. And so reverse racism is a word that's thrown around. And I literally start shutting down my neurons, my brain neurons. When I hear the word, it just, it, it does not make sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it doesn't like it. Um, when you have two words next to each other that are in contradiction to each other, that's called something. It's oxymoron. That. I Thank got you. you. Oxymoron. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were trying to figure out, um, how this term came about. And so we did a little uh, Googling to try and figure it out, Shona and I, and it, you know, it evolved um, from way back in the 1800s all the way through to today, but is uh, a tool of the dominant group, primarily white people. Um, 
to stop the forward progress or the equality of folks of color. Um, and so it's strategic, right? So it is, um, I think it's blanketed in we need to treat everyone the same, no matter their racial identity, right? So there's that colorblindness ideology that's creeping in there, but it's a strategic move by white people to maintain power. Um, it may not be a conscious strategic move, I think, by white people to maintain power, but that's absolutely what it does, right? That we are not, this, our country must treat everyone equally, right? Mm -hmm. Equality is a founding mm -hmm. principle of the United States, although mm -hmm. apparently that founding principle was forgotten for some 300 years, but you know, this mm -hmm. isn't, a, this isn't a history class. So, okay. My, my favorite quote, um, in this one <laughs> is that we don't think that reverse racism is a thing. <laughs> oh, it's definitely not a thing. Not a thing. <laughs> yeah, mm -mm. definitely not a thing. I still feel that way. <laughs> X number right. of episodes later that I haven't changed my opinion on that. Um, we, we may need an we may need a unfazed t-shirt that says reverse racism is not a thing. Like well, we, we might need to like brand ourselves in some way. It is not a thing. Uh -huh. And do it like in reverse lettering in the front or something. I mean, something, but yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I thought was most helpful in this episode was how we talked about the ways in which white people can respond. Um, and you know, there's defense, well, there's denial, then there's defense, and then there's kind of some more reflection on how that might, you know, represent, um, kind of a burning off of the layers, so to speak, in mm -hmm. terms of getting down to the, the stuff that is most raw and most difficult to deal with. So I thought the way that we kind of talked about that as we, you know, built our plane was pretty useful. Mm. And I've, I've thought yeah. about it a number of times since. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this particular one. And you know, we, we, we've talked about, um, we've talked about environmental racism, but I think we were talking about something a little different here, but, you know, I just love that, you know, we're thinking about how does racism, the perception of racism and how one responds to it um, is determined by fragility and their context. And so I just thought it was a really impeccable podcast. So um, we're seeing a pattern here, Lisa, that some of our best podcasts are those, those that we kind of started out like, um, I got a wing and you got a, a motor. Let's figure right. out if we can literally right. build this plane. So, yes. oh my gosh, yes, one of my that, faves. That's our trademark. Okay. So to, <laughs> to wrap up our 52nd one year anniversary show, I had to take us all the way back to our second episode, which was actually our first recorded episode because the very first one we did was a live um, recording. And our second one um, was Nice White Triathletes. So it was episode two. And I have to say, when I was listening to this, I was thinking about um, how nervous I was for that episode because my voice was very <laughs> high and very um, chirpy, I guess would be one way to describe it. And I think I've kind of lowered an octane or two since then. So let's take a listen to what we talked about there. It just feels like there are so many nice white triathletes in the sport of triathlon. And I think that that can sometimes be challenging when we're trying to have some tough conversations. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's so bland, right? It's, it's so bland where I, I remember listening to the first couple of episodes of the podcast. And what was so interesting to me was how uncomfortable everyone sounded on the podcast. Like anytime a question was asked, you could tell like their mouth was smiling or doing something to kind of trying to think through what they wanted to say, if it was the right thing to say. I just thought it was so interesting that they were really thinking through what can I say that won't rock the boat very much? 
that won't upset anyone. Um, maybe not the politically correct thing to say per se, but they definitely were thinking through how to be um, as least offensive as possible to whoever's listening. And I thought that's a whole lot of thinking. Like that doesn't even sound natural to me. You're going to offend someone. You're going to say something that might not be quite right. But, you know, do you really want to kind of live this safe parenting life? And, you know, it applies to triathletes as well. Do we want to live this kind of safe life that we're just in this space? We're kind of very vanilla in our approach to everything. It, it was really applicable to what I've seen in triathlon. I was thinking about it, that it's pretty gendered. And I do see that, I see that gendered breakdown in triathlon, actually. Like when I think about nice white triathletes, I'm Im I immediately kind of like drop into nice white yeah. women triathletes more than I drop into nice white men triathletes. Not that there are not nice white men triathletes, right? But that's kind of the the way I think yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, and doesn't it have like something to do with like the aggressiveness, you know, based on gender? Because, you know, women aren't really seen to be aggressive and, you know, even in triathlon to ride hard, like very rarely do we say a woman is riding hard or riding fast or what have you. It, it's more so, oh, well, she was quick or, you know, the language is still kind of watered down a little bit. And so, you know, to me, I thought it was just interesting that, you know, all these niceties of tiptoeing around a topic. And I think we do similar things in triathlon where we kind of tiptoe through things, um, even as far as how we describe female winners, you know, some of it is very <laughs> tiptoe-ish. And I, I'm like, I don't want to tiptoe around a topic. You know, why can't a woman be just as aggressive? Um, oftentimes, though, if a woman is described as more aggressive in certain ways, then their gender or their sexual orientation is now starting to be questioned because they're mm -hmm. aggressive or because they ride hard or because, you know, I, I think all of that is, you know, kind of folded in and it's kind of sad that aggressiveness is seen as negative, uh, a negative descriptor for women, but it's just par for the course for the guys. Why is that? And I don't think it needs to be that way. Um, but, but it is that way, especially with, you know, serious competitors. Um, now, age groupers, maybe, but definitely for the pros, it, it's definitely there. Mm -hmm. And how that niceness then spills over, like you said, into a fear of not wanting to say anything that could be offensive. Or so <laughs> you've got kind of, yeah, you've got that piece. You've got this kind of white fragility happening, um, mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk more about white fragility in future episodes, but that's happening, I think. And then there's that over that gender overlay, right? Around mm -hmm. women's socialization, around being nice. And right. so then you have um, nice white triathletes who just kind of articulate this message of colorblindness mm -hmm. um, and that, of course, triathlon's inclusive. I'm nice to everyone. Like people are so friendly in triathlon, right? And mm -hmm. then you just, it's like a sidestepping of the larger issue, which comes back to your point of just the trepidation of talking about race yeah. for nice white triathletes is so overwhelming that then we never address the problem. Okay. So I'm still encountering nice white triathletes out and about. How about you, Shauna? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, my, my first thing is, I think uh, we went from chirpy to curse words. Like we did less chirping and more <laughs> curse words as we get into more and more podcasts. Um, but let's be clear, as the podcast has hopefully gotten better and better and matured over the last year, um, I will say that you're right. Uh, nice white triathletes are still out there. 
Um, and again, we're not saying that people should not be nice or kind, but we don't want uh, truth telling to be sacrificed for kindness. And so, you know, I just really appreciate how I think we've spent the entire year trying to break the ice for nice white triathletes not to rest on those laurels. And so, you know, not to say that white triathletes or white endurance sport athletes are our only audience. You certainly are not. But I think this is a good place of discovery and it's been a year of discovery. Um, and so I think that's what makes the combination of our co-host team really good because we can look mm -hmm. at whiteness from so many different angles yeah, yeah. Um, to share with our listeners um, and those that read our transcripts as well. We do have transcripts, um, but that's what we get to show them all those different angles, kind of a, a prism, mm -hmm. if you will, of this work. So yeah, I still encounter them uh, even as I train or as races are starting to open up somewhat, you're still out there and I appreciate you being nice and kind, but sometimes we want a little bit of uh, righteous indignation when it comes to the things that Lisa and I see um, that you may also see, but we need kind of a cadre of people that are willing to be the disruptors, which may not seem as nice or kind in our setting. So I really love that particular podcast. Yes. Righteous indignation. Wonderful. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, so we'd love to hear from you. If any of you have been listening um, from whatever point you started, if you have a favorite episode or a favorite clip, um, please, you know, send us a voicemail, send us an email, um, post it on the Facebook group that we have for the podcast. Um, it would be wonderful for to hear from you all as we hit this momentous occasion of one year, 52 <laughs> episodes, which um, is blows my mind a little, but here we are. So we're going to keep going and keep having these hard conversations, right, Shauna? Absolutely. We're going to keep going. Uh, we hope to hit year number two. And as long as we continue going, um, sadly, the challenges of the world are not going to go away overnight, but they will probably be different and more nuanced and more layers. And so um, we, I think we should take some creative liberties here, Lisa, to make sure that people know that um, we reserve the right to change our opinions moving forward. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe in the future, we might compare episode five to 55, who knows? Um, but I'm just really appreciative of everyone that listens to the podcast, folks that drop us uh, emails, notes, voice notes. We've gotten voice notes before that we've responded to. So reach out to us, let us know what your favorite podcasts have been and even what you might want to hear in the future. But we're excited that Unfazed has now officially turned one. The Unfazed podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash Feisty Triathlon. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. 
This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.